0: Hello and welcome to A.A. Beyond Belief, the podcast. I'm your host, John S. Today we meet Jeb B. from the Freethinkers A.A. Group in Denver, Colorado. Jeb talks about the recovery process in A.A., the Freethinkers Group in Denver, problems with their central office, and his workshop at WAFTIAC coming up this November. I think you'll enjoy this very interesting program.
1: a long background because i've been around for a long time i I grew up in a very religious family uh, as life was centered around the church and uh, i fell in love with the music of the church uh, immediately and that was my main link to any kind of religion was i loved the organ Mm -hmm. i loved the music and uh, that was just the center of my life. We also had another characteristic of our family. is There was a you know, always a lot of drinking when the family was together. And those were the happy times. Mm-hmm. People didn't argue. They, they got along. They told jokes. They told stories. And I just thought that was just the greatest thing. At some point I wanted to come up, uh, you know, get up there where I could be drinking with them and feeling the things they were feeling. So I don't remember exactly when my first drink was, but I'm, I'm sure it was someplace around 10 or 12. But as far as having access to drinking regularly, it probably didn't start until about the same time as my nicotine addiction which is around age 14 because my father had a store uh got bought a store on my 14th birthday and i could get anything i wanted for nothing i could go in there grab grab a package of cigarettes or a six pack of beer and uh didn't cost me anything no one asked anything because i was the boss's son i will say it it worked very well for me for a long time uh because I could let down my shyness, my guards and everything, and just enjoy being uh, loose and fancy free. Uh, That worked for quite a while, I say. Um, I I realized, you know, the longer I'm sober, the more I use the 12 steps to look at my life and learn from my life. I realized that what I was doing even back then as I was running from feelings, and thoughts, discomfort, and anything that may be uncomfortable. And those were pretty good fixes. I was also addicted to reading. I, I'm an avid reader and escaped into reading and studying, which made me a good student. Uh, and uh, I learned to, um, to do a lot of things by myself and I became a professional musician in time and focused on, on, on that. It was one of those things that i could do in isolation and just uh it would just take my all of my attention all of my energy and uh i love i loved what it gave me however i have to say that in in my 20s i i started making decisions based around when i could drink um, and that's uh, something i wasn't willing to look at at all i I think it was um, one of the biggest things was I I took a job in New York City uh, when I was just about 21, and that was a wild place to live uh, in those days, mm-hmm. of 19 uh, 1960s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I uh, had a few friends that moved there, followed me to from Montana, and we uh, spent a lot of time drinking and carousing and doing all sorts of things that I guess. 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds do, sure. I look at. I, I understand today that that's where I was developmentally. My my prefrontal cortex was not fully developed then, mm-hmm. so the executive function wasn't there, and I wasn't able to make – my judgments were not very good. Yeah. And so I, I kind of lived in the moment for the moment. And uh, I did manage to do well in school, uh, actually – after i'd worked for a couple of years in new york i decided i wanted to study with a teacher in germany so i took a leave of absence and boy that year in germany was something else i i got introduced to good, good german beer and yeah. you know one little pub after another and in spite of that I could show up for, for class, for studies and do my practicing and, you know, keep up with my responsibilities and it's sort of miraculous, you know, unexplainable how I've, except I had a high tolerance, there's no question about it. I had a high tolerance, I didn't need much sleep at that time and so I could show up. Uh, I met a a number of other American students when I was there. And some of them already had their master's degrees and were going on for a Ph.D. when they left. And so I thought, maybe now that I'm out of work, I should consider going back to school and get my master's. So I I went through the process of applying long distance and setting up an audition for when I returned to New York. And there um, I was accepted to the Juilliard School. Yeah. It was a very prestigious place and a fine teacher, and it was a great thing. So I decided I could go further in debt and borrow some money to go to school for a couple years to finish that. Again, I, I managed to, to, I was functional. I, I managed to, I took a part time job uh, working in the church because my primary instrument is the organ. I love organ and organ music. And, um, I had that part-time job and full-time school and running around like crazy. And, uh, when I finally graduated, uh, and, um, after some successful concerts and so forth, I suddenly, uh, ended up in the doctor's office because I was jaundiced and very weak. And I think I was, must've been age, so, oh, age 27, 28, I guess. Yeah. And, um, uh, uh, of course, the doctor asked me uh, about my drinking, and I said, "Oh, I drink a little bit." <laughs> the minimizing was very clear to me, and so what happened was uh, he put me in the hospital because all my liver function tests said that I was I was dying. Oh, and uh, it was a it was a rough time, and I think if I'd been a normal person, I would have take, learned from that lesson. But after three months in the hospital, another six months. Uh, at home, uh, I uh, with an order that I should never drink more than one drink a night, at one year of sobriety, I picked up a drink with friends and it was off to the races again. Mm-hmm. Somehow or other, I managed to, to, to make it. Uh, I didn't stop drinking again for another 10 years. But what happened was I, I realized that the drug culture was was very very was getting really active in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. A lot of things were available that uh, that were, you know, just complicating my life. So, I had an offer of a job in Baltimore, where my uh, uh, a a priest that I worked for in Germany offered me a job, a part time job that I thought would be great. You know, I. I can move there, get away from the drug culture, and I can begin to, uh, I can arrange my life with the schedule I'd have there to, to drink all that I wanted. And uh, I must say, I, I was very successful in that job. I did some private teaching. I went back to school. I must say that with all of this sur- being surrounded by the magical thinking of religions and so forth, I got sucked in. It was just a wonderful distraction, again, from what was going on inside of me. So, were you a
0: believer at that time?
1: I well, I yeah, I guess I was a believer, and you know, and it took a while for me to come around to looking upwards, like believe, and so forth. And I realized that it was it's simply an opinion. Uh, beliefs are, are like opinions; yeah. they don't need any kind of fact or anything, any kind of evidence. And I, I did that bit, to, and it, I fit in with other people. Yeah. We talked the talk. We talked the talk. I'm not sure what anybody else's convictions were, what they really trusted in. But I became really pretty evangelical in, in, in my enthusiasm about it. Mm-hmm. And um, I can honestly say that it it... it it kept me afloat because yeah. I didn't deal with childhood memories. I didn't deal with a lot of other things that made me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So this, uh, I could say, well, I did, I even decided, well, I, I probably should go to seminary. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I actually started a master's degree in theology at an ecumenical seminary and some, uh, ecumenical university and seminary. Mm-hmm. It, Baltimore and I I did well but I also brought myself back to where I was when I was a teenager that this is all just a bunch of myth and wonderful historic Mm -hmm. stories people wrote and so forth and I became you know I got really conscious of the fact that this was more of let's pretend right you know when I was a child on Saturday mornings we sit down in front of the radio and we listen to a, 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 a a radio program called let's pretend sponsored by cream of wheat <laughs> and it was you know and we would go into another another world and pretend th- things were true and then it's and then after that on Saturday morning we would go off to to matinees at a local theater and we'd see captain Marvel and Superman and all these other things and we'd be playing let's pretend we'd come home and we'd play let's pretend in the yard and in the park and so forth and then guess what on Sunday morning as a child we'd get up get dressed up in our finest and we'd go to church and do the same thing yeah. play, let's pretend until Sunday evening when we would put it away and get ready for the week The week ahead back mm-hmm. in reality and see I, I, when I got back to working with the church I started doing the same thing all over again so it was it was very interesting but i can honestly say that it was it was an it was an an addiction a stra- and a distraction for me just like everything else so i because i was so much in the middle of things i was head of the Dawson music commission i was on the evangelism committee for the diocese of, of maryland all of these things i uh, i was involved in a um an evangelism retreat, retreat. And this seems strange to say today, but I was the spiritual director. Mm-hmm. And I led people through a lot of things in centering prayer and so forth. And uh, it was on that weekend that I realized that I had a problem with alcohol. Uh-huh. Because the, the organizers, and I was one of the organizers of the retreat, had decided there would be no alcohol during that week. Yeah. Well guess what? I had never <laughs> gone a day without a drink. Uh, well, very few days. Sure. So th- this became a pressure. I'll have to say that on August 26, 1978, after at like four days of sobriety, I decided I was at a wedding reception. I decided I could have one more drink. I changed my mind. I decided that Bonnie and, and Skip would be offended if I didn't drink at their at their mm-hmm. wedding. And so I Went up to the open bar, asked for scotch on the rocks. He filled a tall glass with ice, and then filled it with scotch. Looking back on that today, that was probably eight or ten shots. Yeah. And I downed it, and I changed my mind, and I had one more. And then off to the races. Sure. I, I, I have to remember what happened there, because that was... The thing is, I knew very well, if I paid attention, that I could never have just one drink. And I certainly proved it that night. The next morning, I woke up on the middle of my living room floor where people had dumped me. And I remembered all of the outrageous things that I did and said with people that I loved and I thought Mm -hmm. respected me and so forth. And I was totally ashamed. Mm -hmm. And my thing was, and this, I simply threw my hands in the air and said to the universe, take away the bottle, take away the craving, and make me open to whatever help I need. Mm-hmm. And that was, for me, just a very, that was a decision on my part. Right. I, I knew that it was over. I could not do anymore. So that then I had to start the next day doing some real re- repairs, reparation, whatever mm-hmm. it is, and swearing that I would never drink again, tell my employer, and uh, start making restitution for a lot of the wrongs. And I did not go to aA that's I went, what I was
0: wondering you were you were basically doing the principles of the 12 steps already without even being an AA
1: you've got it <laughs> this is very this is very interesting and so i I, I found it th- I went to a therapist and I uh, and my they insisted I had to go to counseling uh-huh. but I had to have a counselor who was religious because I didn't want anybody messing with my narrow-minded <laughs> <laughs> preconceptions, right. my my prejudices as it were. Yeah. So I got this this Episcopal priest as a uh, as a counselor mm-hmm. and he wanted me to prove that I could do controlled drinking. Wow. But the wonderful thing was he sent me off to a psychiatrist who put me on medication? And the the the, the instructions said I could there could be no alcohol use. Mm-hmm. So I took that back to him and I said, "Look here, I can't drink again." Well, make a long story short, at I at one year of sobriety, I I knew that I was going to have to drink or or kill myself yeah. if I stayed in that job. So uh, and to, of course now I realize that if I had drunk again, I'd be dead. Yeah. But uh, I, uh, I, I resigned from my job right then because I was, it was, had become impossible. They couldn't manipulate me the same way as they could when I was drinking mm-hmm. because I had my wits about me and I was trying to be more responsible and honest and all mm-hmm. those things. So I quit the job, decided to put my house up for, for sale and after several months, I, just, I moved back to, uh, to be close to my family. And I was in Montana. Again, I had a need because I had always had support of a community, a, 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 a need to be close to people, to connect with people. So I decided to try a, a church there. <laughs> and it was not very welcoming, but I, went to a, I got involved with a prayer group and it was not the best thing for me. Yeah. But uh, at least we had some common backgrounds and thoughts. Mm-hmm. So that w- that really didn't work out because at the end of the prayer meeting, they'd always re- want to bring out a bottle of wine and no. I'd have to <laughs> escape. And so I, when I did F on the end up, I met somebody who asked if I was if I ever drank. It was a bartender. I used to stop at a bar on my way home from the prayer meeting to mm-hmm. sit, hear the live music. And he said, "Jim, do you ever, uh, do you ever drink?" And I said, "Yeah, I drink coffee and tea and quinine water." Mm-hmm. <laughs> he says, "No alcohol." And I said, "Well, I no, I, I, I don't drink alcohol." He said, "Are you an alcoholic?" And my response was, "No, but I used to be." And of course, today I, I think that's sort of laughable. Yeah. But if I look at the at the first edition of the big book, mm-hmm. we're referred to as ex-alcoholics. That's right. That's right. Not ex-problem drinkers. That's right. just a funny thing. So, but but he he told me that he and the barmaid were both in AA. They have both been to treatment in the last year. And suggested I might want to check it out because there's some people there who found a way to live without alcohol. And he the next week he gave me a, a meeting schedule. And the next night I drove around the block like five times before I parked a block away <laughs> <laughs> and went into a meeting, and it was an amazing experience. They read that that Very deceptive introduction to how it works. Right. With those 12 steps in there. And I thought, what in the hell's going on? This is exactly what I've been doing. Yeah. And nothing's better. You know, the, I knew that I had to live without alcohol. There was uh-huh. no question. But I was, I, I was not happy. I was not a happy camper. I was totally obsessed with this. Anything would happen. I'd say, I wish I could drink today, but I know better. To drink is to die. Drink is to die. And this, that, so. I still, but I did, I know, I heard things that, again, that I love, that people quoting the doctor's opinion mm-hmm. about the allergy of the body, which is not really an allergy, but that phenomenon mm-hmm. of craving and, and the obsession of the mind. And I thought, man, that's what describes me. And so many things they said I really mm-hmm. related to. But I left that with, that meeting with what I call the gift of hope. Right. Finally, uh, there is hope for me if I can just figure out what these people say they're doing and maybe do some of those things and I can begin to be happy. And I remember calling my mother when I got home from that meeting and I said, finally I find a group I found a group of people who gave who give me permission to not drink. Yeah. And oh man, and I think, you know, they go out for coffee before and afterwards mm-hmm. and so forth. And it was it was just an amazing experience. So I Got hooked on the fellowship right there, you know, became you know, start hanging out at AA meetings because I really needed to substitute for the time that I spent spent drinking and right. doing other things. And I really understand that, but I call it today hiding out at AA meetings. The ninety meetings and ninety days was a safe place for me before I learned anything about how to take care of myself. Yeah, I agree. And that's the real process. But now, the other thing that I picked up at that first meeting, you know, or maybe it was a second, people talking about a common problem and common solution. Okay. Well, I identified with the common problem. Right. And I heard that. I mean, that was so much like me. The stories I'd hear and I was listening to speaker tapes and so forth. That's just like me. But everybody's story as far as a solution was quite different. Very, you're right. Very different. And I finally found a woman who also had a couple of years of sobriety who was experiencing the same thing. What is going on here? What is the common solution? <laughs> so we decided to co-sponsor each other. Mm-hmm. And we, started, we decided we're going to go through the, the precise directions, as Bill calls them, basically pages 60 through 88, Right. try to do those things and hold each other's hands with it, and we got, <clears throat> we got into that process and tried to talk about it. I remember the first group, the new meeting that she and I started, we called the uh, Pop... You know, let's see... Courage to change group mm-hmm. because that's what we thought we both needed was the courage to change thing, and that with the process we were going through with le- looking in the mirror at ourselves, the inventory was really something that helped us to uh, to see what had to be changed and what we could have some control over, and we could encourage each other to, each other to try different things. So that you know that's that was the foundation that I got, and that was I was so grateful for that.
0: So, do you think there is a common solution? Well,
1: uh, um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: I've asked that, myself the same thing.
1: Okay, I I think the main thing, and I've written a lot about this, is that the the fellowship piece that Bill yeah. <laughs> Bill started, and the Bob started in Akron. But Bill was in New York and that they passed on. Yeah. It was that thing of one alcoholic talking with another, sharing with another alcoholic. And I, I I, feel that we've lost a lot of that over the years as meetings have gotten so large. Uh-huh. And, and then it, and it really is possible to hide out in meetings and never say anything, never get to know anybody, never connect with anybody, never reveal anything about yeah. myself. And I, I feel sorry for the newcomers and that that's one I'm really I really hooked on small meetings now yeah. because that's where newcomers can begin to hear themselves talk about themselves yeah they t- they're learn from their own experience and wow well, uh, and that's where free thinkers have been so good for me uh-huh. you know, I've been do- I didn't come out of the closet as an atheist probably until about oh I maybe I was 22 years sober I mean I, I would i would say you know that you i would emphasize the idea of you can have your own concept of a higher power and no i'm not going to say the word god i will spell it and you can it can mean uh, what graciously or design or or, or oh, <laughs> just gift of desperation that's mm-hmm. the one i like that's the one that really gave me the motivation to to change things and i I had to stop uh, participating in in the in prayers at meetings.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, man. I think that was probably when I was 15 years sober. And that was partly because I knew that nobody was listening except maybe the people in the rooms. And I don't know how many of them were listening to those mm-hmm. things. But then I asked, I started watching other people who weren't saying the uh, the prayer. Right. They were holding hands. And uh, this wonderful couple in Spokane said to me, well, we stopped saying it several years ago because we decided we didn't want the newcomer to think that he or she had to learn a Christian prayer or right. had to pray at all. That's not a requirement. And I thought, man, that's great motivation. And, 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 and t- in time, I also got uncomfortable. Well, I would say the third step prayer or something else while people are doing that. But I finally got uncomfortable with myself because here I was really taking their inventory about the silly thing they were doing. I decided the best thing for me to do is during announcements to quietly leave the room Mm -hmm. and come back to socialize with people afterwards. And I've been doing that for 20 some years Mm -hmm. now. And and the meetings that I go to regularly, I explain to people, you'll notice that I leave the room early and that's simply because... A.A. has helped me to find the power that I was looking for mm-hmm. exactly where the book says I'm going to find it deep within. Right. Bill says on page 55 in the last analysis is only there that he and I would say it may be found. But that's, you know, that's. That's it. I have to pay attention to that unsuspected inner resource, which he called it in 1941 in the second printing. those That's the connection, right. and I don't want to ever lose that connection. But if I'm not doing the simple thing that he talks about, that self-examination, mm-hmm. the leveling my pride and confession of shortcomings that the process requires for his successful consummation, I can lose all of this. Right. I need to listen to that inner wisdom, that inner voice, and respect it. And it's my job to encourage other people to look there for what they need, rather than looking for the ideal sponsor or the ideal uh-huh. spouse or the ideal fix of some other kind. And I just rant on and on about this because. Well, that so-
0: sounds exactly like uh, AA. AA. That's AA. What you're describing there, the AA that that I, I
1: believe in, that I that works for me. And see, that's what I would. Uh, I would love to see restored. Yeah. I really would. And it's, I, in that sense, I think I'm a real fundamentalist. It's going yeah. to the fundamentals underneath all of that language, that religious language of the 30s.
0: Well, what's so interesting, Jeb, is everything that you described, the actions are the very same actions that anybody would take, regardless of what they believe is going underneath those actions. Right. You know, so you know, it's like we have we have a lot in common with these people, but for whatever reason, just because we don't we don't profess their belief or we don't want to practice their rituals, sometimes they they consider us as not being somewhat legitimate AA. But we're basically doing the very same damn things. I mean, what you well, talked about was very very straightforward AA as far as I'm concerned.
1: Well, and see what bothered me at the beginning and it has over the years is that it seems that people come in there and they hear that or they read that introduction to mm-hmm. the fifth the fifth chapter. Yeah. And that isn't how it works. No, it's not. It, it doesn't start until after that, what what how it worked. It's not how it works, it's how it worked. And, yeah. you know, and, and how it works for me today is the longest thing that I have they have any right to talk about but but people read those things and then they make up their directions of how they're going to do it and how many books have i read and things from that, that make up the directions they completely ignore uh-huh. they completely ignore the precise directions the process and i will say this when i uh was about eight years sober i decided i i needed to i wanted to I knew I couldn't make a living in Montana as uh-huh. a musician, totally as a musician. So I decided I wanted to go back to school and get a second master's degree. I got a, I went back to school and got an interdisciplinary degree in psychology education social work and sociology it was a guidance and counseling degree mm-hmm. and <clears throat> had no interest in becoming a an alcoholism counselor at all right and so my aim was to become a licensed professional counselor work in that field and I will insert here um, the one of the motivations is my closest friend my soulmate uh, committed suicide. Uh, in recovery. and um I would say that one of the things that contributed to it was he was told by people, either you get God or you die. Uh. And that was I saw that happen more than once. People being driven out of the rooms. So I really wanted to work on suicide prevention. And that became a, a major thing, and that's why I went back to school. And during that time during that education I I, I really learned so much about myself and be, you know and and began to work on uh, honing my understanding of the process so that I could perhaps help other people ended up working in treatment facilities uh, and amazing how they had no idea of calling themselves 12-step based uh-huh no idea of, of 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 the process at all but making up directions on how to do things you know, which made me very uncomfortable and i I can recall my my Advisor, in uh, when I was in, in back in school, saying, "You know, you just think that the twelve steps are the answer to everything." And I say, "Well, the process is the answer to everything." But he also said to our group of would-be counselors, "Process is our most important product, and that's the whole thing that I believe is I have a responsibility to try to transmit the process. Is uh-huh. if they want it." And are able to use it so that they can reap the rewards that I think are promised by the Big Book. Yeah, I really and the Twelve and Twelve.
0: Right. Yeah. You know,
1: most people miss out, but you know, I'm. A, I told you, I'm an avid reader. Yeah. And you know, it's an escape. I also read the Twelve and Twelve in the first year, and and discovered up in the Twelve Step. He says, at this point, we begin to practice all 12 steps on a daily basis so that we and those around us can find emotional sobriety. Mm-hmm. And I look around the rooms, and I say, where in hell is the emotional sobriety? <laughs> it's probably because they're not doing this stuff. Right. And they keep saying the principles are something else. Right. No. And I, but if I'm going to, that's one of the things that I've had to do is, is make up my own glossary of terms so that, when I read the literature, or when I talk, or I listen, I have some idea of what things mean to me. Right. I really don't know what Bill me- meant when he used the word, any you know, the words, but I can guess. Uh, and and one of the things that I have in front of me is a sheet that I that I I'm, I'm going to uh, use in, in my workshop in Austin uh-huh. uh, in, in November which is uh, you know it's titled words are only symbols and it's a personal glossary of terms and a lot of these are words that I didn't even look up okay. until I was 15 or 20 or 30 years sober one of them is the word step okay. <laughs> and i, I happen to be fortunate enough that i was born the same year that the 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 big book was first printed,
0: okay, nineteen
1: thirty nine, and I have a nineteen thirty nine dictionary, and one of the definitions for step is a course of action. That's so important, and then I have the advantage. That is important in it. Yeah, and the other thing that I hang on to is well, I have a memory. I have a chair sitting in my living room that was my grandmother's platform rocker. Uh-huh. And I have it <laughs> because it was handed down to me because I really wanted it. Nobody else wanted it. When I was six or seven years old, sitting on grandma's lap, I said, Grandma, what does spiritual mean? And she said, well, spiritual is all, is, means non-material, All the things you can't see. So that means to me today my feelings, my thoughts, my themes, my ideas, my attitudes, all of those things that affect my life in the physical world. But those are the things that AA has helped me to value and pay attention to and learn from. And so and, and and so spirituality ended up, you know, I was in the, in the dictionary it says dealing with attitudes, ideas, emotions, beliefs. Yeah, that that's what I'm trying to do. And so <laughs> but I know from trying to share my understanding of things in even in our uh m- non-prayer meetings. Right. Uh, that's what our our non-religious AA meetings People will say, well, I would never use that word spiritual or spirituality because and and because they're locked in. And what I'm looking at is is that piece from William Paley that Bill attributed to Herbert Spencer, Uh uh, you know, of that contempt prior to investigation. I need to close-mindedness is sure. was the big the big thing that kept me away from aA in the beginning you know, it's the big thing that I that you know that that uh, <laughs> that was the resistance I had to any new ideas for running my life. And that we, they read that in, in all these meetings around here. Some of us ho- tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go. Absolutely. Uh-huh. It took me years to let go of a lot of my old ideas. And today I would call them ancient ideas <laughs> because they are like first century um first century ideas and we're in the twenty first first century superstition really. Right. And we live in a twenty first century of technology and everything else. So well, I, I think spirituality
0: out. for me, it's um it's just what you describe. It's those things, those those feelings, those emotions, those thoughts. Oh yeah. Uh that, that I that I could change. But but it's also a language that I can communicate those feelings with other human beings.
1: Yes. <laughs> unless they'll say, you know, my first therapist said, you know, what are you feeling? Yeah. I don't, I'm not feeling anything. I don't know. And then he kept after me, and i say, well, I'm pissed, you know. That, that, uh, the but we do. That, we can connect yeah.
0: with people, especially through writing. Um, you know, if I read uh-huh. if I read something, like I love Maria Hornbacher's book, um, Waiting, A Nonbeliever's Higher Power. She, yes, wrote, right. she writes so beautifully, very, very spiritual language, but I— she does it. I think it's a very effective tool to communicate an idea and to connect with people on an
1: emotional level. Right. But we have to learn that language. We do. We have to have somebody teach us. <laughs> in a sense, and, yeah. And I know I have a, a sense of feeling, a, a set of feeling cards. These cards that have happy faces, sad faces, and angry faces, and so forth, that I used to use with with clients that to help them to you know go through the, the deck and take out the ones that you can kind of relate to, mm-hmm. and then we'll talk about these feelings. And that that was an introduction. I've seen feeling charts like that. But nobody gave me that ability. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, you know, no, nobody gave me much help with, with, with identifying feelings. And I will say, you know, I go by Jeb. That mm-hmm. isn't my real name. Those right. are my initials. Right. But I would say after Norman committed suicide, I I, I had an experience that I, will, I never want to forget. I went out to my folks' house after I... Well, I have to spend a lot of time with Norman's parents and I started to walk across the lawn, Dad walking toward me and I started crying and he said, "What's wrong?" in his love, lovely, friendly way. And I said, "Well, I'm just hurting that I've lost my very best friend. He said, "Stop it. You don't have to feel that way. Oh wow. We were about at his garage when this conversation started. I saw my Boy Scout hatchet lying on a pile of wood. Mm-hmm. It has a leather scabbard on it, protector on it. it says J-E-B, my initials. Mm-hmm. I picked it up, took the leather off, and started chasing that asshole around the room. the, oh, wow. the With mom in the background screaming, Jim, Jim, drop it. Jim, stop it. And the thing that saved us... Was what she says, Jim, call Roger. Roger was my sponsor. Uh-huh. I dropped the hatchet. I went inside. I couldn't even remember Roger's telephone number, but luckily I had this thing of a index card in my wallet that somebody suggested with telephone numbers on it. And even I called Roger sometimes every day, but there it was. So I called him, and he helped me to just c- calm down and. Yeah. And and accept what was happening and go to my father and tell him that I would really regretted what we'd done, what I'd said, and I would do everything I could to never repeat that. And so that's I that that's the piece of I had to have a new identity.
0: Yeah.
1: And that that was that was thirty two years ago mm-hmm. that that, that incident. But I keep it alive because I keep remembering that's a part of my story lessons learned i never want to be as i can be just as crazy sober alcohol free as i was when i was drinking and praise i never went anybody after anybody with a hatchet or anything (laughs) else (laughs) when i was drinking but that's uh that's uh really important so when i finally got away from working for churches in, in what uh 2002. Uh-huh. I still do some substitute work because I'm very good at it. It pays well. I love the music. But but I got out of the regular employment there. I, I started um, being honest with myself and others about the fact that whatever it is, is something that's inside of each one of us. And that's what I need to work on connecting with. And uh, so I decided to... Ask, start ask everyone but family to start calling me Jeb. Okay. Because that was the new me. And uh, it's funny. If if somebody in a meeting, when I say, my name is Jeb and I'm an alcoholic or a uh-huh. great covered alcoholic, and they say, Jim, I cringe. It makes me so uncomfortable. Isn't
0: it interesting? <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. A lot of people don't know this about me, but I did kind of a similar thing mine was the opposite though i i when i grew up i went by my initials everybody called me jd that was always my name uh-huh. <laughs> and i stopped using that um when i got to aa and i've been oh. john ever since oh really <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> i i felt like i don't know why i did that but i just i just felt like i don't know i needed to i needed a clean break from my past
1: yeah well, anytime there's a major change, whether it's a move or a, a move or what, it, or a relationship, there, there's a personality change yeah. that takes place. It's a, a personality adjustment, an identity adjustment, yeah. and so my identity of uh, as Jeb is a recovered alcoholic, and actually, I didn't start doing that uh, consistently. The mm-hmm. Jeb thing—hardly no, anybody except family here in Denver. N- n- think of me as, as James Earl Barrett. Right. And there's very, very
0: few people, just people that know me from my family that know me and call me by my initials. I was kind of curious, Jeb. Um, so how, how did your uh, group in Denver start? Did you start that group?
1: Um, the free thinkers group? Well, yeah. Uh, I've sponsored hundreds of men and, and women over the last 30 some years. And one thing that I have found is it was really important when we were working together to, uh, take the literature for what it is take what we can use and leave the rest Mm -hmm. and uh you know and it's i I refer to it as being the digestive process you know Mm -hmm. and then some of the stuff is just filler and i can just poop it out as it were and (laughs) but the stuff that can and try to get people on track to doing the stuff that i i know works i have no authority to talk about how the other things that people do because i i'm not doing that i'm doing but I do. And it, so some of the people that I met here in, in Denver uh, and I started talking about wouldn't it be great if we could have a, a secular meeting. And so there was four of us, I think, uh, decided, OK, let's start looking for a place. About that time there was a a, a building, uh, uh, an organization called the Secular Hub mm-hmm. had its opening. And I had joined the freedom and I joined the freedom for religion foundation after mm-hmm. someone gave me a, a copy of free thought today. Man, there's more people who think like I do, or at least don't think the way I used to. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I thought, this is a great place. This was uh, three and a half years ago. They said, here's a great place for meetings. So I met with their board and asked if we could have a meeting time and space. So we started out um, October, well, it will be three years ago this month, okay. I think. Uh, and, and this next week, it will be three years ago. We had our first meeting. I think there were six people there. And uh It has just been amazing. I immediately registered us with with GSO. And um, then I tried to get a a registration, uh, get listed in the local schedule. Uh And I wanted to call it a secular AA. Right. And the office manager says, oh, you can't call it that because you can't have a a group named after the meeting place. And I said, okay. She says, well, some place I'm calling we agnostics, I mm-hmm. call them free thinkers. And I said, Free Thinkers sounds good to me. That sounds like open minded. Yes. <laughs> so I said, let's do that. So we decided to do Free Thinkers in AA. Then she refused to list this in the schedule. Why? Because she said that we didn't want anybody to think that that is what if that's their first meeting, that that's what AA is all about. Oh God. And I'm one of these people who takes literally, we have cease fighting anybody or anything. I stay out of pissing matches and so forth. Right. I tried reasonable conversation with her, but I but, you know, my thing was quoting the, the Declaration of Responsibility. And that's what it is. I really want the doors of AA to be open to everybody. Anyway, if we wow. couldn't get, she wouldn't do the listing. So. I decided, well, there's more than one way to skin a cat, What sure. an awful expression. So I I decided to create a meetup group uh-huh. and did that online, $15 a month for that listing that people, if they mm-hmm. if they did a Google search for for secular, humanist, mm-hmm. non-religious, atheist, agnostic, AA, skeptical AA, whatever, they would find us. And that... And so people found us doing their Google searches. Absolutely. And you've got a wonderful website now too. Uh, well, we work on, we've had some help and, you know, and it, it, it the, the website reflects the personality. Well, this yeah, is pretty much reflects my personality, mm-hmm. but it reflects the personality of the group, sure. which is people who really want to support one another and encourage one another in, in overcoming addictions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's just, we have, we, I, I maintain a confidential uh, email list mm-hmm. uh, and use MailChimp to mail out notices about meetings and, and reports and so forth and resources that I think like the people to uh, to, to have. And uh, we have, I think, 105 people on that list that receive our emails yeah. right now. And our Monday night meeting which has been going for 3 3 years now uh, at one point we got up to 28 29 the hot, largest was 31 people that's too large for an a meeting yeah. unless it's a speaker meeting it just but we are we've kind of settled down in this last this last year to someplace being 15 to 18 19 people and that's that's very manageable. Yeah, that's a good size. Meeting. It really is. And the we, we I try to open up a half an hour before and close, uh, and a half an hour later, so people have a chance to have a little bit of the meeting before and the meeting after the meeting, which I really thrived mm-hmm. on in early sobriety. But I don't see a lot of that happening anymore. Right. But so um, you're
0: doing just fine without being listed with your central office.
1: We are, however. Um, the biggest problem I have is that when people call the AA hotline and they ask about a secular AA meeting, they say, "Well, AA is God, spiritual." I can't religious. believe this. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I can't. I, 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 this is oh wow. <laughs> no, and and one case where somebody called called them they. Uh, the guy t- said to the the, the the hotline person. Well, then, so what am I supposed to do? I'm, I'm not going to go to a church me- meeting, yeah. prayer meeting, and they and and they said, well, you know, it's just that's just what AA is. And he said, ah, I, I, I guess I might just well go drink then. Well, I guess so it was oh, the and see, that's the sort of thing that really irritates me. Oh man! Really. Now we have we have a GSR right. who's very active in our district, and it, and then the, in well, I was the. Was I
0: ask you that? Did Did you bring area. this problem with the central office up to at your district?
1: Yes, but they have about the same sort of thing that the GSO does. It's catch twenty two, isn't it? It's the autonomy. Yep, they won't and, do anything. thing. You know, as you saw on our on our um, website, we put I put the long form of I the. Saw. Conditions three, four, and five yep. in there, and they are violating all three of those. Yep. And and we really, we have one message. Our message is the declaration of responsibility. That's it.
0: Jeb, anybody who's listening to you right now, they would recognize you as True Blue AA. I mean, you're totally into the steps. You're into spirituality. You're into the transformation of AA, the fellowship of AA. I mean, gosh, <laughs> there's nothing well, more out, A, there's nothing more AA than you. And for your well, central office— part. For your central yeah. office, and you love the big book and the twelve as well. So I'm a big
1: book stumper. Yeah. A big, so God,
0: saying? this is and, crazy. And
1: um, it's the valuable stuff. Yeah. But, but man, oh, oh I wow. just.
0: But this is what's going to get AA in trouble because here's the problem: is your um your central office is wrong. They're discriminating. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing that AA is going to – there's nothing GSO is going to do about it. There's nothing that your area is going to do about it. There's nothing that your district is going to do about it because they say that the the central office is independent.
1: Right. And see – that, that's been one of my issues for years is that it's outside the service structure. And, and we had a regional forum, a, an additional Southwest regional forum. I wish I
0: would have gone to that. I know a couple of guys that went to that from Kansas City. Oh,
1: it was so great. And I, I have a thing of wherever I am making a point of being noticed you know, going to the microphone and introduce myself and free thinkers and A.A. and all that sort of thing. So people know that. And it becomes provocative. They start thinking about it and so mm-hmm. forth. But I, I talked with a number of people from G.S.O. and trustees, you know, in the breaks and so forth. And, and, and they were very validating and affirming of mm-hmm. what we're doing and grateful we're doing, but they're not willing to intervene in any way to, to help us along. And uh, I talked with our area chair or area secretary, I'm not sure whether, but and he said, you know, they're really in vi- violation of the concepts. Yep. We, we should at least have the vo- the ability to, to, to voice our, our problems, our concerns, Within the intergroup, what do they call that? Their central office committee or whatever. Yeah. But we appointed a uh, we appointed a representative to our central office, a man who had been volunteering on Friday afternoon for twelve years at the central office, and they would not seat him because Incredible. we are not rec- because we're not a recognized group.
0: Wow, your your intergroup is worse or just as bad
1: as the Toronto intergroup. Well, it's one person. I think if we were given the opportunity to to present our case to the committee or intergroup whatever that is, uh we, we might sway something. So my hope is but by our getting my members getting more involved in this in the committees of the district and the area right. and very more visible yep. Doing some of those things, they'll they'll start listening. Now our our DCM ha- has attended our meeting, uh, the last the outgoing one, uh, and and just thought it was a wonderful meeting, and he liked he loved the honesty and all that sort of thing. But nobody's doing anything about saying, "Hey, central office, you got to list these guys." Yeah. Now, you know, when I was in Chicago this last summer, this summer for a, a com and a conference in another organization, I I looked checked out their website and I think it's interesting. At the top, they have a, a in small print a, a thing to click on for non prayer meetings, right? And then it opens it up to the quad four and uh, or quad eight. Right. I can't put quad. is redundant. Yeah, and I thought. Man, maybe I'll try that suggestion to her. Huh. Uh, so we list as many of the, all of the secular groups in, in Colorado. Mm-hmm. So, uh,
0: You've got a great uh, website. You really do. You've got a lot of good information on it.
1: Yeah, I wish I could get a, a few more people to, to write some personal stories and so forth. I haven't even written anything myself to put on there. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, uh, I think it's just useful resources, you know. And I'm I'm committed to the group process. That's why I put Yalom's Therapeutic Factors on there. Yeah, why A works the universality, you know. The, there's so much that happens in A just because we're together, and we feel safe being honest. Did you? Are you the one who wrote the alternative steps that you have on your site? how to guess? The, did I thought so? <laughs> it, yeah. Well, it's 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 my thing is. I know, and you know, that Bill wrote, tried to reflect or summarize what people were doing. First of all, Uh and then in the ninth hour, the twelfth hour, he decided to write twelve steps to kind of reflect (laughs) it. And they didn't reflect it. They don't reflect the process. (laughs) No, yours are beautiful. The first step is concede to my innermost self that I'm alcoholic. Yeah. Not admit. Oh my gosh! You're right.
0: You wrote it out exactly. We can see Diarmaid cells that we wrote. That's exactly what it says in the big book.
1: Yeah, and (laughs) so most of it uses expressions there that are the process that I think. um, So you're looking at the process
0: when you were writing those.
1: Yeah, that's you know that was I know one of the the people from GSO that I was talking with one of the staff members, um, and uh, and and during a break she said. uh, well why don't you just start your own you know why don't you just start your own movement and I said but you don't understand AA gave me what I have and and AA the it, the stuff is there and she said well do you use the steps and I said well not the way Bill summarized <laughs> the process because that was that's misleading right. and it's it's there for the people the religious People, the Catholics in particular, who have, if they thought that was something was not going was going to go against their 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 beliefs and so mm-hmm. forth, or their authority, that they would they would tell them they couldn't go to AA. So they're that's they're written for people who have that religious bent. Right. So. My thing was I just have to look at, you know, what is the process? But more recently, I've come around to the fact that, you know, that that fifth chapter says rarely have I seen a person fail and so forth. And I used to say, really should say, rarely have I seen a person who has thoroughly followed our path. I mean, Uh, I have known very few people who followed the path, even with those 12 misleading steps. Oh, yeah. uh, Let alone the process. Right. And so... What the reality is, Bill, you know, I, I had the sponsor when I moved to Missoula, Montana, who said, uh, when you're reading the stories, I want you to try to identify when and how people are using the steps. Ho, 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 ho. Huh. And the only one that even comes close to any of the things is Bill's story, but... I would guess that somehow or other those original fifty or sixty people were doing a number of things, and he kind of summed them up, but here are the thing, here are the steps we took. Right. And, and he should have said, some of us took some of these, some of us took others, <laughs> yeah. None of us have done them all, and that's the reality. And that, I love that little collection of his writings as Bill Season, yeah. because on one sixty one, he 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 tells it exactly like it is, and so we can say the steps are open to interpretation, right. and, and therefore depending on the individual, and therefore you can start the steps at any point that you can or will. Right. And and I always start people with my with a with steps ten and eleven. Doing the inventory at night, of looking, continue to watch the selfishness, dishonest, resentment, and fear. Mm-hmm. When they crop up, you know, take care of it, and that sort of thing. And then the morning discipline of mm-hmm. having a plan for the day. Mm-hmm. Because the only reason that my life was controlled by other people, places, and things is I didn't have my own plan for the future, let alone for the day. Right. So, but I've learned, you know, on awakening to think about the 24 hours ahead before I begin and consider my plans for the day. And before I begin, ask them, I think you may be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. And they write it down because I have a Teflon brain. So I I rant this way. But, you know, John, the sad thing is I never hear anybody else saying what I'm saying. You
0: don't in uh,
1: meetings? No. But I keep saying what I've been saying, and I keep saying it. And every once in a while, I'll say some, somebody will say, I really need to get back to writing my plan for the day. Mm-hmm. And I say, that's good. The seed was planted. But you know, I think of Bill Wilson running around trying to sober people up for six months and nobody's sobering up. And Lois, and he's saying, you know, complain to Lois. And then she's say, but Bill, it's kept you sober. That's what it's about. That's why I need to keep... You know, it's, you've got to give it away to keep it. That's it. And that was pounded into me at the beginning, too. And I'd say that the majority of people don't, man, don't seem to want to give it away. The majority of people don't sponsor people, Mm -hmm. Jay. The majority of people don't have a sponsor. Mm-hmm. The majority of people are still in isolation. And if there's anything I want, is for people to connect more with one another.
0: Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. That's some interesting observations. I... I think you're probably right. I, I noticed that at my old home group before I started the we agnostics group that it was like that. I, I It was kind of superficial. At least it was for me because I think I just stopped. I, I realized I wasn't believing this stuff anymore, at least the way it was
1: worded. Learning When I finally met, met people were willing to question, and willing to express a kind of skepticism about things. And, and you know, th- I think that was when I was back in school, working on the second master's degree, mm-hmm. was learning that you know, that I didn't have to believe everything that I heard and everything that I read. And now I can say I don't have to believe everything I think either. Yeah. But it, that, that's really important. Leave, you know, leave that questions there. And that's the scientific method is always be willing to question things because maybe there's one, another answer. Maybe there's more. And, you know, that, one of the liberating things when I and I guess in 1990, when I was Working on a, a master's thesis, which was on addiction and spirituality, I found that the the, the, the origin of the word addiction, it comes from a Latin word, uh, adicere, mm-hmm. uh, for per, which means to give my voice over to, in other words, to give my my will and my life over to a substance and behavior. So th- th- that's what it was. I, I turned my will and my life over to alcohol for many years, for nicotine for, for mm-hmm. many years, to, to work, to, to, to man, to, to food. <laughs> and and the, I had to somehow turn my will and my life over to the care of what AA has given me, that relationship, yeah. that inner self and that I can value so today aA has helped me to, to develop self-esteem self-respect and things that I didn't have and uh, but I have still sit in those meetings where people are beating themselves up as being a a worm and no man and mm-hmm. you know and just flawed and no no, no uh, that's and I love the way you know I, I often quote the very beginning of the big book it says, that There were more than 100 men or women. Well, he was mm-hmm. exaggerating because he was just like <laughs> me. <laughs> you know, who have, who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Yeah. And I underline the word seemingly. I only thought before I came to A.E. that I couldn't have a life. I couldn't be happy. I couldn't be free at all. Mm-hmm. But I found out I was given the gift of hope. And I found out that I just, I was lying to myself. I yeah. could have these things. <laughs> And I just had to be willing to give up a lot a lot of old stuff, you know, yeah. bit by bit. So that's <laughs> that's it. But I, I would say our group is pretty healthy right now. Yeah. Uh, and we started last year we started a second meeting, a Saturday morning meeting, uh nine thirty. I thought, well that'd be a great time because I know there's some big meetings on Saturday morning elsewhere. I'll tell you, that is the hardest one to keep going. Uh I don't know why. Just Saturday morning customer, meeting. We're a large metro area, and people come distances and so forth. But this morning, for example, we had six people. Uh-huh. Last week, we had eight people. Sometimes uh-huh. it's just two or three. Uh-huh. But we find that, I find that that new people find that meeting, and, and that's a good introduction. And there they have a chance to talk a little bit about themselves yeah. and to ask some questions and connect with this. And, man, I love that little meeting. Yeah. because it pushes me to be responsible mm-hmm. to them to you know and uh, on my way there why am i doing this well because i'm responsible <laughs> yeah but every, i i just learned that some of the best stuff from these people and the interesting thing this morning uh we had a couple new people to our meeting i think yeah that was the first <laughs> time they had been there um one of them hadn't had a drink for three years, but he still smokes marijuana. But he he's in trouble, and he has to he has to do AA. Mm-hmm. But just but anyway, he was there. But somebody, I I talked about the fact that when I finally started retiring back in two thousand two, uh, I finally found a psychiatrist that understood adult ADHD,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I had in my therapy. Work. I'd worked with dual diagnosis men largely, and a lot of them were sent in with a diagnosis of bipolar. But they the kind of screening that they'd gone through was not comprehensive, and and they were really ADD, and they'd oh. been self medicating and so forth. Anyway, when I finally had. I had two jobs. Oh, that's the other thing. I'm a workaholic. I'm, <laughs> I was music director and organist for the Catholic Cathedral. Mm-hmm. That was supposedly a half-time, but more like a three-quarter-time job. I was the clinical supervisor and associate director of an outpatient mental health and chemical dependency program. But when I retired from those two things, my mind no longer had things to discipline it. And I, I was... I was crazy. I felt crazy. And I finally found a, a, um, a psychiatrist who understood adult ADHD. And he was the one who said to me well, that once at that first session, well, it's pretty clear to me that you've had a habit of self-medicating your whole yeah. life. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: And so that's that was the beginning of my real recovery again was to get uh, a proper medication for for that, and I just, it's, I've had to change it yeah. over the years yeah. because the body builds a tolerance, and uh, sure. everything it responds differently. So that's but but this morning's meeting and I said a little bit about that in the meeting, and every one of the men at the meeting this morning said, "Well, actually, I either I was diagnosed with ADD when I was a kid, or I know I'm ADD and I haven't done anything about it, mm-hmm. or I couldn't survive if I didn't have." My 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 meds, and that was so good to hear that admission because I I don't know if this was twenty years ago or fifteen years ago, maybe Mm -hmm. I remember reading research that said seventy eight percent of people in recovery from addictions have a have a a diagnosis or should have a diagnosis of ADD. Isn't that interesting? And and that's all over the place. So Hmm. anyway, that's uh, (laughs) but that I think that. I wouldn't be aware of any of these things if I hadn't learned to pay attention to what's going on inside of me.
0: Yeah. Well, this has really been fascinating talking to you. I really thank you very much for doing this. Um, because I've always been interested about your group. I've, um, when I was starting out, yours is a yours is a group that I was looking at, and um, I, then I've, I was getting kind of I was always kind of curious about what was going on with your central office. So it's kind of good to know what that story is. It kind of makes me mad, but that's the way things are. Yeah. <laughs> but I look forward I, to seeing you in Austin and your workshop. That sounds interesting.
1: Well, I I keep hoping that other people will will, will contact Central Office and say, "Why aren't you listing this this free thinkers in AA and just keep confronting it?" You know, let somebody I else... might
0: actually harass them. They're you know, your uh, your Central Office will probably be in Kansas City in November. Uh, there there's they're, they're doing this big um Oh central office meeting and is gonna be in Kansas City for all the central offices in North America.
1: That's right
0: and I'm actually going to be there for our district serving them lunch. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> and maybe I'll stop by the Denver people and ask them what's wrong with
1: them. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if anybody from here will even go there. This is one of the things about Denver in general I've noticed is it's they're very, very parochial.
0: Right. You
1: know, the legislature here is, is really not interested in what's happening in other states, <laughs> and people really don't want, they're very suspicious of outsiders. It's, it's like a very closed system right (laughs) Uh, then it could be central office people be the same way i don't know
0: maybe so well if they're there i'll uh, maybe i'll make a point talking to them it'll make my (laughs) central office people a little bit nervous i'm sure
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah what's the big deal you know i i I look for the day when they'll at least get rid of of uh, what at prayers at the beginning and ending of meetings because it does feel like church
0: yeah, I'm yeah. really coming around on that. I I've been pretty bad because um, okay, I, I don't go to regular AA meetings, so I don't deal with that anymore. But I certainly have been holding hands, but not praying with them at the end of their district meetings and area assemblies. Uh huh. But I think uh, the next area, the next district meeting, I'm going to ask if they can stop doing the Lord's prayer and start start closing with the responsibility pledge. Oh, and we got a new GSR now, and I'm going to ask um, the GSR if if they would uh, make a a motion at area assembly to stop saying the Lord's prayer. Area assembly, we'll see how that goes.
1: Well, you know, where was it? The I think the last um, uh, convention, you know, AA convention Mm -hmm. I went to was in San Antonio, Mm -hmm. and they were directed to not use. That prayer at the end, right? But the big meeting in the in the whatever the Alamo dome, whatever yeah. that I was there. The person who closed the meeting says, "Let us now join in the Lord's prayer." And I heard a sigh, and I was one of the people in the balcony. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and then at the at our the, the what do you call it? The regional forum.
0: Yeah.
1: Closing of that, I was sure after all of the stuff that that that, that I <laughs> that I'd said that they wouldn't do that. But this woman got, you know, well-intended woman. I said, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. And I wanted to say, why should we do that? But I didn't. I was polite. I just walked out and thought, well, we're not there yet. Right. And so that's, that's it. And I can be true to myself. That's the main piece. And I think that, you know, the integrity was what became more important to me. You know, over the years is that I just, I can't have anybody think that I'm actually uh, talking to an invisible being, but a sky god. Right, right. Or that I I turn my will in my life irresponsibly over to abdicate responsibility for my life or abdicate anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Working for churches all those years and hearing the same prayers over and over, I knew very well that that's what pe- it made people feel good, that they were asking this imaginary being to right. do things that they weren't willing to do anything about. Yeah. And that abdication of responsibility really became an irritant. And it,
0: it, the prayer itself is such a huge obstacle for newcomers to overcome. Oh. It's not necessary. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, That bugs me about it. Yeah, well, yeah. Jeb, I guess i probably better get going. I, I actually have to go pick my car up. I had a muffler and some shock absorbers put on it today, so I'm gonna go get that so I can get around That's tomorrow. Good. Well, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been very nice, very nice. Yeah. Um, this has been a very interesting conversation. I've learned a lot, and I love your steps. By the way, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna post those on our um, on the uh, podcast right up.
1: Yeah, and I, I also have another personal version. Oh, really? because I this is what I ask the people that I work with because Bill said in talking about those prayers, which I don't call prayers anymore, that it's a, you know, the third step uh, decision or discipline, the seventh step is discipline. I ask them to write their own version of those to mm-hmm. whatever they want to talk to, which to me, it's myself.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> My innermost self is called Jeb, incidentally. <laughs> <laughs> and, but but um, I I say it's you know, I think it's a good idea to write your own version of the steps that reflect exactly what you're doing. Absolutely. So I, so I have a version of those that is more me mm-hmm. rather than a, rather than a collective. Right. And so so it, anyway. that's
0: cool. Well, if you'd like to send those to me, I'd like to take a look at them. That'd be fun. Okay, but we'll they're not too that. personal.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay.
0: Do I have your email address? I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you on our on an instant message. Okay, do that. That sounds okay.
1: good. All right, Okay. Jeff. So have a great day. You See too. you in Austin. See you in okay. Austin, my friend. Ready. All All right. Right. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. Well, that's it for another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. We'll be back next week with Ben B. talking about Step 10. Until then, you take care, be well, we'll talk again soon.